We'll hear argument first today in number 041581, Wisconsin Right to Life Incorporated versus the Federal Election Commission. Mr. Bob. Thank you, and Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case involves the fundamental First Amendment question of whether the government can shield lawmakers from grassroots lobbying about upcoming votes in Congress through campaign finance laws. This Court has distinguished the regulation of corporate electioneering from efforts to influence lawmaking, finding sufficiently compelling governmental interests in regulating electioneering, but not grassroots lobbying. Mr. Bob, right right there, I guess I I have a problem with with your argument, and I just want to get it out. Uh, I went back and looked at some of the examples uh, that were given in in the McConnell case uh, for parallels between what we what we thought was covered in those cases and in in yours your case and the the one which i i i guessed was probably the closest was the uh, was the advertisements there in in the McConnell case on the um, the lobbying on the uh chinese trade relations uh the basic message in, in that case was uh, China uses forced labor. The Congress of the United States is about to make it easier for, for, for Chinese goods to get in here and for China to have a respectable trade status. And, and it said, call Congressman Myrick, I think it was, in any case, a, a member of Congress, uh, and, and say what you think. Uh, in this case, uh, you're, you're talking about a, a filibuster, and you say, you know, they're filibustering nominees, and they're not coming up to, to a vote. Uh, tell the two senators in this state, uh, Cole and Feingold, uh, that, that you don't like this. The only difference that I could see, basically, between the two kinds of ads was that in the first one, in the, in the Myrick ad, they actually gave the number of the, of the congressional office to call and say, hey, don't do this. In this case, uh, your clients did not give uh, a number. They gave a website to an organization, and so far as I know, it doesn't have a number. Which gets me to the question. Uh, if the, 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 the Chinese trade relations ad uh, was presumably validly subject to the act, I don't see why your client's ad is not for the same reason subject to the act and for the further reason that it doesn't even give a phone number to call to, to, to lobby the people. Uh, so it seems to me that on stare decisis grounds, uh, unless we're going to go back and simply re-examine McConnell to the, to, from, from scratch, uh, that your clients fall within the general rule as, as, as we held it in McConnell. So why doesn't precedent foreclose this? Well, th- there's uh, a few specifics about, the ad, about our ad that, that I would like to um Remind the court uh, first. Uh, it was not the call to action at the end of the ad was not just call them up and tell them what you think. The call to action was to call the senators and ask them to oppose the filibuster. So yeah, but you didn't specific. give their phone numbers. Well, uh, and then it refers to a website, BeFair.org, which contained prominently on the first page the phone numbers and addresses and all contact information for these two senators. The decision was made by the speaker here that it would be more likely that the recipient of the ad would remember the phrase BeFair.org and seek the information on that website than to have a, you know, a, a uh, phone number 
that is just simply more difficult to, to remember. Okay. So if we accept that extra step, that's, that gets you if, — if we accept the extra step, that gets you parallel to the, to the ad that we considered in McConnell. Well, uh, it, it doesn't, the one that you mentioned, because it was just call them up and if, — If it's if the fact that you go to the website, and that's what's supposed to make this what it was in McConnell, which, by the way, we said was illegal, what they — first thing they're going to see when they get to the website, which I agree with you, four times in three of the 12 sentences of this ad, in three of the 12, it says, BeFair.org. Visit BeFair.org, go to BeFair.org, and the first thing that they're going to see when they get to BeFair.org is a big headline in bold, gold, bold letters which says, Fine gold and coal continue to support unprecedented filibusters of judicial nominees. So, in fact, if BeFair.org is brought into the picture, that makes this ad look much more like an effort to, to, to defeat Senator Feingold than the ad that we considered in our previous case, well, it, doesn't it? it? No. In your previous case, uh, there were certainly genuine issue ads. This Court recognized that, it, that uh, there were genuine issue ads that were not uh, for the purpose of influencing an election. Uh, I believe that these ads are at the very core of what a genuine issue ad is. It involves a, a pending legislative issue and the only reference to the uh, senator, is, and, and it was both senators, uh, not uh, just the one up for election, was to contact them about, uh, about how, whether to support or oppose that specific initiative. But yes, you were right. In McConnell, in McConnell, the court said corporations and unions may finance genuine issue ads during election blackout periods by simply avoiding any specific reference to federal candidates or in doubtful cases by paying for the ad from a segregated fund. Now, that language indicates to me, at least, that the Court was saying there are no genuine issue ads meeting the definition as you would have us uh, apply it. Well, that, that part of the opinion needs to be read in light of the footnote, which is attached to those very words, uh, which said uh, in footnote 88, that uh, the interests that support re regulation of electioneering may not apply to genuine grassroots lobbying and distinguished the McConnell case from Bellotti and um, McIntyre. So we, we do have to recognize that there's two things going on here. There, there, there's an election, but also Congress is in session. The government is engaging in its lawmaking function. Mr. Buff, to what extent can we take into account the surrounding circumstances? One thing that you advocate is to look at this ad in isolation. But if you add to it that your organization made it clear that it opposed the candidacy of Senator Feingold and that it supported his opponents, that your organization also connected, as Justice Breyer just brought out, Senator Feingold with this filibuster. And then, if the filibuster was such an important thing for grassroots lobbying, why was it that when the election was over, this ad was not repeated? 
Well, of course, the final point is, is in the record. That, that is, it was, it, it was supposed to come to a head in November, and then it did not. Uh, it was abandoned. But the, uh, but the point is, you cannot, uh, I don't think that the government can I don't condition. understand what you just said. Well, well the, the, the filibuster issue, as it related to that session of Congress, it was thought that it was going to come to a head in, in, in uh, October, excuse me, uh, but, it did, but, as a, uh, it, but it did not. So th- that is the reason why it was, if it, did it would not, not have been run after November. No, but I mean, once it didn't come to a head in November and it was still an issue, why didn't you continue to run it? Well, each organization has to make an assessment with respect to the different issues that they want to be lobbying on and their, their pressing nature. I think and there was, no, it was not an issue after the election. Well, well, it was in the in the next session of Congress and has been a, an issue. Uh, but each or, a lobby organization makes a decision about the priorities that they have and whether or not their lobbying efforts will uh, most likely affect legislative action. So, Were you taking a position on this issue prior to the election time frame? Yes. They, they, taking out advertisements prior to that time frame? Yes. Yes. And, and in fact, these uh, radio and television ads were continuing up into the blackout period, and it was the blackout period that, that triggered the case. But the, but the basic question, I think, is this. All of us, or almost all of us who are here, spent an entire summer reading through one of the longest set of opinions I've ever seen from the lower courts and going through a record that they had compiled over months reflecting six years of congressional effort. And what that record showed with dozens, hundreds, I think, of examples was a basis for Congress's conclusion that there's simply no way to know whether an ad like yours is a genuine issue ad or isn't. And the only way that we have a hope of stopping rich people or corporations or labor unions from simply trying to defeat candidates by writing sham ads is to have the rule that we had. Now, you have a very good argument, but it's an argument that I heard right in that case. And we considered right in that case issues like yours, just ads like yours, Ads that were even less sham-like than yours, if you want to call yours a sham. I don't mean to be pejorative. But we considered all that. And then we used them as an example, and of course it was close. Five to four, this court said ads that are even more apparently neutral on their face than yours, Congress can impose this requirement. Now, what's different about your ad? than the ads we put right in that opinion as examples of what we'd allow Congress to control, what's different now, or are you asking us to go back only a year later and undo what we did? No, I'm asking you to give meaning to the holding of this Court that there were genuine issue ads that were broadcast during that period of time. The government conceded 7 percent, asked you to do a Broderick analysis upholding the statute on its face, reserving as-applied challenges to genuine issue ads in subsequent cases. That is what this case is about. And the difference here is that, as Judge Leon, the record of the case, in Judge Leon's opinion, he went for a number of pages explaining 
what genuine issue ads in his view were. And, what, and he said that if the ad discusses a current legislative issue and refers to the member of Congress in calling on him or her to take a particular action on that issue, that constitutes a genuine issue ad. These we people are lawmaking. To, Mr. Bob, then can we return to my question? Do we view the ad in isolation and do we discount the connection by your organization of this senator with the filibuster that you said was a very bad thing. And I'm sorry, I was interrupted. I wasn't able to get to that question. And the, uh, uh, the government cannot condition the exercise of one right on exercising another. There's a First Amendment right for the pack of Wisconsin Right to Life to support or oppose candidates. That's different than what its lobby group does. Its lobby group is uh, primarily involved in influencing current lawmaking. And so that is why in the First Amendment, petition is separately listed. But the electorate will know that this issue is presented to them in connection with this senator and that your organization has linked the two very clearly. But, you know, the the effect on an election is remote and speculative and not proven uh, by, in terms of genuine issue ads in this record. But these people are lawmaking now. So there's a pressing need and indeed right for people today to influence the government's lawmaking, re- regardless of the incidental, remote, speculative, and unproven effect that that genuine issue ad uh, may have on an election. That there is simply, we just cannot get away from the fact that the most important thing that government does is lawmaking. And because they've scheduled election, should not immunize the incumbents from being lobbied about that very lawmaking function that they're engaged then in. Then why didn't we have to go the other way in the Chinese trade relation example? I mean, everything, well, I unless I'm that. missing something in your argument, everything you are saying in this argument could have been said with respect to that ads, and as Justice Breyer said, to a couple of others. Well, that may very well have been a genuine issue ad in the mind of this Court. You only cited one ad, which was on page uh, 193, which was the Yellowtail ad, as an example of sham issue advertising. And there, you know. And we we cited some other examples uh, as, as, as examples that, uh, on the face of it and on the face of the record, uh, would, would lawfully fall within the, the general rule that we said Congress could prescribe. Well, well the Yellowtail ad, which you cited and quoted as uh, an example of sham issue ad, uh, said that the, Mr. Yellowtail had taken a sw- swing at his wife, uh, and he justified that because he said he didn't hit her. No, but the, the And then point- it said basically call him up and yell at him. But I, 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 I don't want to cut you off from your yellowtail argument if, if, if you want to make it, but it seems to me that the problem in this case is that your ad is very much like a non-yellowtail ad. And the problem that we would have in accepting your argument is, number one, a problem of precedent, and number two, the problem that Justice Breyer raised, that, again, we had dealt with in the prior case. How could it be Once, No, no, let me just finish Sorry. my question. Once you get out of the sphere of, of kind of uh, sham ads that just hit you in your face, 
there isn't a practical way to tell the difference. There isn't a kind of magic formula. We rejected the magic words, or Congress rejected the magic words approach. And therefore, Congress came up with a rule that it did. Within certain time limits, identified candidates, identified audiences, you can't do it within this period of time unless you do it through a PAC. What is different in your case from those paradigm examples uh, in, in McConnell? Well, I was describing the yellow, Yellowtail ad. Uh, but Yellowtail is, an, is an ad, of, an, an obviously sham ad. And the problem did, did that the we're dealing with — Did the opinion refer to sham ads? Did the opinion refer to sham Justice Souter. May, may I finish my question? The, the, no one is saying that your ad in this case is an obviously sham ad like Yellowtail. Your ad in this case is one of those ads that it's difficult to deal with fairly. Uh, you can say, well, you know, it's an electioneering ad, and you can say it's, it's a lobbying ad. And, and Congress decided how to deal with them. We said that's okay. Only on Why doesn't — yeah, but why doesn't your ad follow within the reasoning that we used in approving uh, on the facial challenge in approving the statute? Because the Broderick facial challenge analysis that you gauged in in McConnell is not completed, because that includes future as-applied challenges. The government argued no, that no there were 7 percent. No question about it, but your, your as-applied challenge has got to have something different about it, something unusual that says this is why my ad does not fall within the general rule, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Well, I, I will repeat. The, uh, it involves a currently pending legislative issue. It does not talk — Wasn't the Chinese trade issue currently pending? Yes, it was. And, you know, the Chinese — So that's they, no difference. But, 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 Your Honor, the Chinese example was not cited by this Court. It was in the record. And it may be a, a genuine issue. Sure. Act. Okay? And, and the government argued there were 7 percent genuine issue at, mm -hmm. really trying to exercise the constitutional right to petition government, because government is regulating us right now in terms of their votes and their actions. And, of course, that's why in the First Amendment, it doesn't just say speech and, and, and association and press. It, it says petition the government. question just to find out. Are you contending that there is a sharp distinction, there's a category of issue ads and a category of election ads that are mutually exclusive? Uh, I think you can create objective criteria, just like this Court well, has. I, I think you can answer my question, yes or no. Are you, are you arguing there are two mutually exclusive categories, or are there ads that fit somewhat in both? I, well, I, I think that you can adopt objective criteria, as you have in the Norvie-Pennington doctrine, to separate the two. Are you able to answer my question, yes or no? I, I would say no. You're not claiming there are separate categories. I, no, I, then I misunderstood your question, Your Honor. I am saying that they are separate categories. This Court — It's either an, uh, it's either an issue ad or it's a campaign yes. ad. And I'm not saying at the, at the margins there, there may not be doubtful cases. But what I'm saying is that this Court in Norvie-Pennington Doctrine has recognized and ad adopted objective criteria to distinguish between uh, genuine efforts to uh, influence the government, which is not subject to the Sherman Act, and sham issues, uh, uh, efforts to regulate. Does the, does the FEC draw, uh, distinguish between uh, sham ads and genuine issue ads? No, that, no, they haven't. But right before the 2004 election, excuse me, 
they gave an, uh, an exception to an auto dealership that wanted to continue to run the name of the uh, owner of the dealership despite the fact that he was a senator, uh, a candidate for United States Senate during the blackout period. And the commercial interests at stake there were sufficient for the FEC to grant an as-applied exception, uh, uh, e- e- even though there may have been some incidental effect on the election. So the FEC has recognized that there is interests which are sufficient and, and also that the, the possible impact on an election is so remote that, uh, that the interests are, are sufficient. All right. So what is the test? Because I, my vague recollection from a year and a half ago is that there was in that testimony political consultants who said, if you really want to defeat a senator, here's how you do it. Run an ad that just speaks about a group of senators. It's plain that they're bad. And then put in some words that mention his name and everybody will get the point. They said that's even better than saying vote against. And then our opinion said there is little difference between an ad that urges voters to vote against Jane Doe and one that condemned James Doe's record on a particular issue while exhorting viewers to call Jane Doe and tell her what you think. That was the opinion. So, now what's your test to decide whether that's what's going on or whether this is a genuine issue? I think that you would look at, one, uh, whether the, the ad discusses a current legislative issue. Two, uh, whether or not it made any reference to the uh, legislator beyond lobbying him or her about that specific issue. So uh, there should not be any references to the election or the candidacy of the incumbent or uh, any of those uh, type references. And if you had that, uh, you would have a bona fide, genuine effort to lobby I mean, they are voting, they are taxing us, they are regulating us, and, and as we know, the record reflects that usually most of the of these issues are decided uh, in the context of this blackout period at the end of end of Congress. So I know it is difficult to balance these interests, but there is more interest among the people than simply the remote and speculative effort to influence an election. That there is an immediate need to influence how government is regulating and taxing us. So that is the interest that is presented here. That is the interest that the court in McConnell recognized when the court said there are genuine issue ads and, uh, and only engaged in what the government urged was a Broderick facial challenge analysis. The government said in McConnell, well, any of these genuine issue ads can be dealt with in an as-applied challenge. Now, they have switched sides here, having uh, asked the court and the court engaging in a Broderick facial uh, challenge analysis, are now saying that that even though Broderick would allow as-applied, that uh, you are not to entertain any as applied. I just don't see. Now, this ad could have been run by your clients um, by a segregated fund. Yes. Yes, that is true. And, and of course, as, as this court has recognized. They ran out of money. Is that the deal? Well, uh, that was only part of it. Uh, they, they didn't raise money with the anticipation of doing their lobbying with it. In other words, they raise all their lobbying money in their, in their general treasury. The only funds they raise in their pack is to advocate the election or defeat of candidates or give money to candidates, which, which this court has recognized is a proper way of directly affecting uh, elections. 
But uh, making lobbying into a PAC means that, number one, you're going to have to identify that effort to influence a vote about an upcoming vote in Congress. You're going to have to identify that as a political activity. If you can do this, can a labor union do it? Yes. And a corporation? Yes. Of course, the prohibition we're attacking is against corporations. All right. Well, then, then, then we're back. To, I mean, I've heard this. This is very familiar music to me, and I think you raise a tough issue. Uh, I just thought we perhaps had decided it. But the, the, the reason that this was so tough was then these very, very wealthy individuals, and in a sense, I once read through the list. I know who they are. And they, 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 they say, I'm going to get 15 million. You know, I'm going to get 15 million. So they hire this genius political consultant that's there in the record, and what happens is ads that look an awful lot like this. And this consultant says, hey, we have 15 million to pay for it from this one person. And uh, they run them all over the country. And senator after senator is boom, 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 boom. It becomes a question of motive. And how do we know what the motive is? That's not what advocacy groups are doing. Uh, You know, people who want the wealthy people you're talking about have gone into giving money to 527 unincorporated groups that that are using uh, issue ads lawfully through that vehicle. But, you know, before uh, this all happened, the 1996 in the record of McConnell, where all of a sudden there were more of these issue ads, the record also reflects that there had been issue ads, you know, throughout history. And, and of course, those were all these efforts to influence the upcoming votes uh, in Congress. So that occurred before this effort with sham issue ads. It, It would occur now except that genuine issue advocacy through grassroots lobbying is now swept in under the reason that it might have an incidental effect on elections. This Court just simply needs to recognize that there's more to government than elections, and even more importantly than elections is the lawmaking function, and that the people should not be disabled from using most effective means to influence that lawmaking uh, with, on the basis that simply there's an election coming up. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Bob. General Clement, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In McConnell against FEC, this Court upheld Title II's definition and regulation of electioneering communications by corporations and unions as defined in the Act. In McConnell against FEC, you stood there and told us that this was a facial challenge and that as-applied challenges could be brought in the future. This is an as-applied challenge, and now you're telling us that it's already been decided. It's a classic bait-and-switch. No, in in fairness, Mr. Chief Justice, in the McConnell case at pages 105 and 106 of our brief, we said that as-applied challenges would arguably be available. But the principal argument we stressed in the brief and at oral argument was that, in a sense, overbreath analysis here and even as-applied challenges, though we didn't put it in those terms, are a little bit beside the point because of the nature of the regulatory structure here. Is there any other case that you can cite where we've upheld a facial challenge and then later said that an as-applied challenge was barred by our ruling on the facial challenge? 
Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I will answer it, and I can — and I think actually — Like Justice Stevens was — I think that's a yes or no. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Lane and Hibbs. I can't imagine after those two decisions, which upheld in facial challenges the statutes at issue there and said that there was not too much prophylaxis for purposes of Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. I, I beg I your pardon. I didn't hear the names of the cases. Lane and Hibbs, Tennessee against Lane and uh, Nevada against Hibbs. I can't imagine after those decisions that somebody — That's a very different question. That's interpreting the scope of Congress's power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. The issue is whether it's limited to the constitutional violations or sweeps more broadly. If you conclude that it sweeps more broadly, it's not suggesting that an as-applied challenge can be brought by someone who's covered by the broader sweep. That's a very different question. Is there any First Amendment case where we've said this is facially valid and then said as-applied challenges can't be brought? I don't think this Court has had — like in any of those cases where you have a a, a broad prohibition and you say, yes, there may be situations where it's unconstitutional, the statute's valid on its face. And then someone comes in and says, well, my situation is one where it's unconstitutional. We've never said, well, it's too bad because it's valid on its face, have we? Well, I think the case really hasn't arisen because generally when this Court clearly identifies an area where Congress can regulate in prophylactic terms, somebody doesn't come back in and try to bring the exact same challenge. And if I could give you two examples, if somebody after Burson against Freeman, which you may remember is the case where this Court upheld a 100-foot buffer zone around a polling place, if somebody came in after that decision and said, well, that can't apply to me in an as-applied challenge because I only want to stand 90 feet away. I think they would have gotten laughed out of court, because this court already said that a 100-foot buffer zone was sufficient. I think in a similar way — Well, it look- might have been that 90 feet uh, included a public street. You couldn't go down the public street without uh, — so, uh, so — Well, Justice Kennedy, maybe — It does seem strange to me in a speech case to say uh, we are foreclosing as applied challenges. And, and, Justice Kennedy, please understand me. I don't mean to suggest that McConnell somehow magically jurisdictionally foreclosed as applied challenges. And I suppose if somebody could come in after Burson and give a good reason why their situation is very different, that there's a superhighway 90 feet away, or that all they were talking about is a bumper sticker on a car, well, then maybe well, that I kind suppose of- you can say, yes, you can have an as applied challenge, but this one doesn't meet the test. Exactly, Justice O'Connor. And again, it's not because it's foreclosed. It's because the reasoning of this court in McConnell foreclosed. So let's say you had an organization that every month of every year it took out an ad the first week of every month, and it said the same thing, and it said, contact your senators, this issue is important to us. And they do that every month. All of a sudden, their ad's nature changes because an election happens to be coming up, and it's illegal the month before the election, even though it was clearly something that they did without regard to the election. Mr. Chief Justice, that would be a better as-applied challenge. I still think that with respect to the ads in the 30 days before the primary and the 60 days before the, the general election, that corporation could look at this Court's decision in McConnell and say, oh, I understand. Our remedy is not an as-applied challenge. If Our you want to place an ad in October, the solution is to place an ad uh, November through September, and then we're okay. And the only reason we're going to do it November through September is so we can do it in October? No, That's no. A pretty broad definition of a sham. No, no. The point would be in October, either do exactly what this Court said at page 206 of the McConnell opinion. Either make the ad in terms that doesn't expressly refer to the candidate, which if you're not interested in influencing the candidate election, shouldn't be a problem, or fund that one advertisement. They want to, but, but on an issue like this, the filibuster, it's the senators who are doing it, and their ad referred to not only the senator who was up for election, but the one who was not. 
I understand that, Mr. Chief Justice, but I think if you focus in on this particular ad, you will see that whatever the true intent of the advertisers here, this is the kind of ad that clearly would have an impact on the election. I mean, it talks about the, the, the filibusters in colorful terms, associates them with gridlock and with a state of emergency, and then associates it with a candidate. You think Congress has the power to prohibit any First Amendment contact, uh, conduct that might have an, an impact on the election? I mean, is that the criterion for whether it, it can be prohibited? No, Justice Scalia, it's not. But I think what this Court very clearly did in McConnell is it rejected an argument that said that the only thing that Congress could regulate is that which was unambiguously targeted at a candidate election. So you think there is a compelling interest uh, in preventing people from thinking about an issue and then calling their senator during the blackout period. That's the compelling interest that, in effect, you are arguing for. No, Justice Kennedy. What we're arguing for stems from the observation that this Court made in McConnell, which is that when you get up between 60 days before an election and you look at the ads that are run, most of the ads, in fact, are designed to influence candidate elections. It's very difficult to figure out exactly which ones, and there are very serious problems with adopting a very vague intent standard. Are, are websites and chat rooms covered by the uh, uh, McCain-Feingold? No, they're not, Justice Kennedy. The but Internet's certainly not under covered. your view, they ought to be. If you funded a website, which was very popular, or a chat room, I certainly think it should come within your prescription so that we can't talk about issues during an election. No, Justice Kennedy, I think the fact that there are alternative methods available to communicate these ideas and these ads is a virtue, not a defect with this regulatory structure. And I would like to focus in on these ads, because while it is true Why, why, why not? Suppose, suppose most people look at the website and they don't listen to the, uh, listen to the radio. I think certainly McCain-Feingold should be extended to that under your view. Well, Justice Kennedy, I, 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 I'm not sure you really do think that, that McCain-Feingold should be extended to that. And I do think that this is an area where this Court, in fairness, has recognized that, that any effort to regulate in this area effectively has to avoid three pitfalls. And it's a very difficult task for Congress. It has to avoid being vague. It has to avoid being overbroad. And as your question suggests, it also has to avoid being so under-inclusive and easy to evade that it can simply be circumvented in a way that Congress can achieve its purpose. What is the difference with this? Uh, I mean, in my mind are possible as-applied challenges, bread for the city. Never supported the candidate, worried about the hurricane in Louisiana. Vote for relief for New Orleans. Write your senator, Senator X. Organization two, never supported a, a candidate one way or the other, but has an issue they're always interested in, and they run ads cycle after cycle after cycle, and they don't want to pull them just because October's come along. All right? Now, think of those organizations where I think maybe, sure, maybe they'd win their as-applied challenge. And here you're not arguing it. he doesn't have a right to bring it. You're arguing, of course, he can bring an as-applied ta- challenge. He's just going to lose, given our rationale. All right? Why? Well, I, 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 I want to be responsive, and I think the way to respond is that this Court's decision recognized that these ads were going to be difficult to classify and that you needed some kind of bright-line rule and that the consequences of having a bright-line rule in this, consequence, in this area weren't terrible because there were alternative ways for them to communicate, either through a separate segregated fund which served the interest of the statute or by avoiding the kind of references that would raise serious questions about tar- tying the ad to a candidate election. And I think if you look at — if you want to keep 
po the possibility open of some as applied challenge and you focus on these ads, these are ads that clearly, I think, would implicate the concerns of Congress. What was the bright line rule that, that you think the, uh, the opinion established? I thought the bright line rule was whether it's an issue ad or, or rather a phony issue ad. I thought that was the, the line that, that the opinion was trying to, to draw. You, you say that the opinion drew the line between what? All issue ads are out? I think all issue ads that come within the statutory prohibition are permissibly regulable. No issue ads during the, uh, the blackout? Sure, you can run issue ads as long as you either fund them through a separate segregated fund no, or you no. omit the reference oh, to the candidate. I know. And, and, and stand and on your head. But the, uh, within, within the uh, framework of the statute, you think the clear line that is established by the opinion is no issue ads without this special funding during the blackout. You think that's what the opinion says? I think that this — I do think that is what the opinion says and stands for, and I think this Court — Why does it speak about sham issue ads? Well, Justice Scalia, one thing, I think it's important to recognize that the discussion about sham versus genuine issue ads was really a factor of the fact that necessarily in looking at the record there, what the Court had to do is look at ads that were run in previous election cycles where this regulatory structure wasn't in place, and try to classify those ads. And as I understand it, sort of genuine versus sham was a way of capturing whether or not it was an ad that seemed primarily focused on an issue or primarily focused on a candidate election. Why did you say there were 7 percent of these that would probably be okay? I'm not sure which figure Mr. Bopp is referring to as the 7 percent figure. I don't, I don't remember conceding that 7 percent of the ads were okay. And I think what we very clearly said, and if you go back and look at our briefs as I did, I think you'll see this. What we very clearly said, and the Court picked up on it in that line on page 206 that Justice O'Connor read earlier, is that whatever was true about a retrospective analysis of ads that were run in an election cycle that wasn't governed by the statute, that in the future, corporations could avoid the, the strictures of the statute by simply doing one of two things, either avoiding making an express reference to the candidate, which ought not to be too difficult if you're really just engaged in issue advocacy, not trying to influence a candidate election, or alternatively, you can fund it through the separate segregated. I, I deny the first thing, that it's easy to do issue ads without naming the candidate. The, the, the point of an issue ad is to put pressure on the, on the candidate that you want to vote your way. Without, without telling people to call, uh, not the candidate, the, the, the incumbent that you want to vote your way, without telling people to call the office of that incumbent, you're not doing very much. Well, Justice Scalia, they didn't even do that in this ad, as has already been pointed out. And if they would have said, find out what you can do to stop judicial filibusters, visit BeFair.org, and avoided a reference to Senator Feingold, they could have run this through their general treasury funds. But they couldn't resist the temptation to mention Senator Feingold. Could they context. have said in the ad, uh, call your elected representatives, not naming any names? Yes, Justice O'Connor, they also could have done that. And I think that the very fact that they couldn't resist the temptation to link the filibuster issue to Senator Feingold is not that surprising, you, given you that General, it may be because the people who were doing the filibuster were the senators. It's not, it's not a surprising thing to link the senators to that issue. 
Well, and again, Mr. Chief Justice, so, I mean, fair enough. But I think you also have to keep in mind that this is a context where this filibuster issue isn't some idiosyncratic interest of the appellant here. This is an issue that was identified as a campaign issue by the, Sen- by the, by the candidates opposing Senator Feingold, by the Wisconsin Republican Party, and by appellant's own PAC. And to the extent you're trying to figure out whether this was really designed to influence the pending legislative votes or the election, the timing of this ad strongly suggests it was designed the fact to influence the election. Both, the fact that it mentions both senators strongly suggests to me that it's concerned about the issue, because one of the senators wasn't up for election. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, that gets back to Justice Stevens' question as to whether or not these categories are mutually exclusive. I'm not here to tell you that appellants weren't genuinely issued about, genuinely interested about the filibuster issue. I think they were also, as their political action committee press release shows, genuinely interested in sending Senator Feingold packing. And they had an opportunity to run this ad and effectively get a twofer by naming Senator Feingold. Now, they could have resisted that and only gotten the influence on the, uh, the filibuster issue if they had taken and they, the and they, could have, they could have named Senator Cole, I take it. They, they could have, Senator Kennedy. It's such an odd calculus. Who is the person more likely to be influenced uh, with an issue ad, the person who's running or the person who's not going to run for four years? Obviously the former. Uh, obviously. And that's, and, that, and that's the one area where the ad's prohibited. Uh, obviously you're right, Justice Kennedy, but obviously there are concerns that are implicated when somebody's running in cycle and the ad is targeted at the electorate in the immediate run-up to the election that aren't present there with Senator Cole, and therefore the Congress has, has struck a different balance in that case. But just to focus on the timing of these ads, they were run on day four of a 45-day August recess of the Senate. Now, that timing, if what you were trying to do is to influence a pending legislative vote, is very, very odd timing. It could hardly be worse. If, on the other hand, you're trying to influence in the upcoming election, the timing of that ad makes a great difference. Well, if you're trying to influence the senators who are presumably or possibly in their home state during a recess, that's perfect timing to influence the senators who are the ones engaging in the filibuster. I'm not sure I would. Without regard to whether they're running for election or not. With respect, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm not sure I'd pick day four of the August recess to do that. Maybe 14 days before they're going back, something like that would be an appropriate time to catch their attention in a a period where they're going to remember it when they go and vote. But I think day four of a 45-day recess is probably not when I would pick to start running these ads. I don't suggest, though, the timing factor or any other one factor ought to be dispositive. I think what it goes to show is how difficult it would be to try to get into a fact-intensive as applied analysis of these various issues, and all of that presumably would have to be done in the context of TRO hearings and preliminary injunction hearings on the eve of elections. I've lost track of it. Your your answer to Justice Breyer's hypothetical about bread for the city and the hurricane and all that is that that would be an illegal ad? Well, no, I think my answer to that would be that we'd still be here suggesting that that's controlled. I think my answer was also that that would be a far better as-applied challenge than the one that this Court has before it. And I think, you know, in in one sense, we, we make this point in the brief. I mean, contrasting this case with a case like MCFL, I think is quite instructive. There, you're not focused on the content or intent of specific ads. You look at the organization as a whole. And you come up with fairly bright lines, and once you've made a determination about the organization in an as-applied challenge, you're done with the issue. Here, the kind of as- So you do an ideological history, an ideological pedigree of various speakers. You think that's consistent with the First Amendment? That was the ACLU suggestion. Uh, which it seems to me shows you how far we, we, we've gone down this road. 
Well, I mean, that may speak about where the ACLU is going. I don't think it speaks about where this Court is going, because this Court hasn't adopted that test. The test that this Court adopted in MCFL did not get into that kind of inquiry. What it did is it focused on three relatively bright-line factors about whether you accept corporate money, whether you have other sources of income from the corporation, and whether or not you were formed expressly for political views, but without any sort of censorship or inquiry into what kind of political views. And that, I think, this Court has found administrable. The FEC administers that test. That's what I want to know exactly. I didn't think. I thought Congress considered this impossible question. I thought that 7 percent figure was from a study, in fact, dozens of studies, where these people who were experts, quote, decided that about 7 percent of the ads like this one, distinguishing between really interested in issues or interested in issues but in significant part defeating the senator. And the latter, of course, it's campaign, and it's part of the regulation of campaign funds. But they didn't think we could do it. They thought first they could do it, and then they told the FEC to go and produce a set of regs that would, in fact, try to screen out that legitimate 7 percent. Am I wrong about how the statute was supposed to work? No, you're not wrong, Justice Breyer. And I would say that the well, F- why haven't they done it? And I thought also that they were supposed to control 527s by having regs that, or individual cases that would decide whether there was a mix of personnel between the campaign and the 527, whether they talked to people who planned their strategy. Have there been those regs written? Well, Justice Breyer, let me answer both questions. As to the 527 issue, as I understand it, the Commission has decided to proceed on case-by-case inquiries and has not tried to have a broad regulatory approach yet. Now, on to the issue of electioneering communications, you're absolutely right that there is a statutory authorization to create exceptions, but the regulatory authority of the Commission is limited, and it's limited in the sense that they can't approve an exception that would allow for ads that engage, that, that, that fairly read, engage in promoting, attacking, supporting, or opposing a candidate. And what the FEC has found in practice is that it's very difficult to create that kind of regulatory exception, because as this Court recognized in Buckley and in McConnell, one does not want to naively underestimate the creativity of corporate spenders or political consultants. And if you create a bright line and say, all right, if you do this, that's grassroots lobbying, that's not electioneering communication, they're going to be able to drive a truck through that kind of exception, unless you're exceedingly careful. General Clement. If you could clarify for me something, a response that Mr. Bopp gave, did this ad run, was it broadcast or televised before the blackout period? Well, Justice Ginsburg, as I understand the record, the first effort to broadcast this ad was on, I think, July 26th. And that was sort of a few days before the, 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 the cutoff period would kick in. So there was an effort by a matter of weeks to broadcast this ad. But I think, you know, whether one views that as setting the stage for this litigation or being kind of an independent decision, I I leave to others. What I think is important, though, is that although they were engaged on this issue before then, up until that point, they had found it perfectly satisfactory to engage on the issue without engaging in broadcast advertisement. May I ask you one other thing about the setting? When you went to the website to get further information, what was conveyed about Senator Feingold when you went to get that further information? 
Well, Justice Ginsburg, I, I don't have as good an answer for that as I would like because the, the website is now defunct. And so maybe Mr. Bob can answer that in rebuttal. As I understand it, consistent with what Justice Breyer said, that there was sort of additional arguments about the Feingold record on, on, on filibusters and Senator Cole's record on filibusters, and then there was, there was information about how to contact them. But I think, again, as, as, as Mr. Bapa said, if, if you don't find the broadcast medium a particularly effective way to convey the phone numbers and you have to reference people to the website anyways, the very fact that you could reference them to the websites without naming the candidates' names and avoid the strictures entirely seems like the kind of thing that this Court had in mind when it said on page 206 that there were ways to deal with this problem prospectively and that you didn't need a as-applied challenge like this one. And again, I think you can't overestimate the difficulties here, because General Clement, you've, you've pointed out the difficulties, but I don't know any other area where we say, well, you know, the, 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 when you're dealing with important, important freedoms, important guarantees, where we shrug our shoulders and say, well, the only way to accomplish what the government wants to do is to ride right, right over those guarantees. I mean, we say uh, we, we cannot bust up this uh, this drug conspiracy unless we use warrantless searches. So you know, whatever it takes, we don't we don't operate that way. And here you're you're dealing with a very fundamental guarantee. Just the, 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 the right which I think applies to corporations as well as to anybody else and for individuals to associate with one another to bring to bear influence on the legislative process. That's a fundamental guarantee, and it doesn't satisfy me to say, well, there's no other way to stop people from criticizing uh, incumbents during, uh, during uh, the election blackout period. Maybe you can't do entirely what you want to do. Well, I hope that's not the case, Justice Scalia. Let me give you two other First Amendment examples, the first admittedly involving intermediate scrutiny, the second a strict scrutiny case. The first thing I have in mind is the contribution limits themselves. This Court has fully admitted that that doesn't have a scalpel to probe the difference between 2,000, 1,000, 4,000 as a contribution limit. And it's perfectly willing to admit in its opinions that not every high-value donor is going to be involved in an effort at corruption. Yet this Court approved the approach of the contribution limits, which are hard to understand as anything other than prophylactic limits. Now, that's an example from intermediate scrutiny. Even in the strict scrutiny context, though, a case like Burson, I mean, this Court understood and said in the opinion, we can't tell whether 75 feet would be precisely okay or whether 90 feet or 100 feet. We don't have a scalpel to probe that either. But we're going to approve 100 feet because it's a basic way of dealing with this problem, identifying the area of potential concern. And people can do their electioneering 101 feet away. They can do it here on the 61st day. They can do it through the segregated fund. I think that is an approach that this Court has found acceptable, even in the First Amendment area, in dealing with these interactions. Practical problems, and I think Buckley. But both of those examples, of course, are quanti quant quantities. And once you, had, I think it was Holmes who said, once you admit the necessity of drawing a line, you know, you can always find something on one side or the other. It's quite different between a thousand dollars and two thousand dollars, or a hundred feet and seventy-five feet, and advocacy with respect to an election and advocacy with respect to an issue. It's an entirely different quality of a distinction, it seems to me. And, and the, difference, it, the difference is, is the content-based inquiry. Well, but, Justice Kennedy, precisely because you can't engage in just a formless content-based inquiry, and precisely because there isn't any neat division between issue ads and candidate ads, 
That is why you need to have a different regulatory approach. I mean, this Court recognizes — I think the real bottom line for the, your opponent is that even a pure election ad should get the same constitutional protection as an issue ad, which is something we've rejected. Absolutely, Justice Stevens. And, of course, an even position one step intermediary from that or one step backtracking from that would be to say that all Congress can do in this area is regulate those ads that are unambiguously election-oriented. And, of course, what's the class of those ads? Well, that would be express advocacy. And the one thing that I think is clear from this Court's decision in McConnell is this Court made clear that express advocacy is not a constitutional line. Congress is not disempowered to go after mixed ads that are Yes, they have a component of issue ads, but you bet you they're intended to influence the election. Those ads are what are at issue here, and I think in order to be able to regulate those in a way that makes sense, the key is to regulate in a way that's not vague, that's not overbroad, but is not so under-inclusive that it can be easily evaded. And I think Buckley shows how hard that is. It's a tall order. In Buckley, this Court had a provision of FECA that prohibited independent expenditures related to a candidate election. The only way the Court could save that provision from the vagueness concern was to limit it to express advocacy. But having done that, the Court said, well, so limited, it's so easy to evade, we're going to find that it fails strict scrutiny. In McConnell, this Court said that in BICRA, after careful study, Congress had actually found out a way to avoid those three pitfalls. All of the proposed alternatives of, uh, of, of appellants run headlong into one or more of those obstacles. Look at the tests they've proposed. They've proposed looking at 16 factors, four details. They disclaim any interest intent, but any of those tests, I think, would be vague and unworkable. In contrast, they pluck a definition from the IRS regs that is designed to deal with 501c3 corporations in a completely different context or a modification of a proposal by big sponsors, and they, and they put those tests out there, and those would be very, very easy to evade in practice. In fact, I think if you use some of the tests that they propose or their amicis proposed, and you looked at the body of ads that were before this Court in McConnell, you'd end up finding that a substantial percentage of them were grassroots lobbying. Well, if one thing has to be inconsistent with this Court's decision in McConnell, it's the conclusion that a substantial amount of the ads covered by this definition are unconstitutionally regulated, because this Court clearly rejected a substantial overbreath claim. The one thing I would say in, in closing is to understand that Congress, having sort of avoided these very difficult pitfalls of vagueness, overbreath, and easy evasion, came up with this definition in Title II. But as this Court recognized in McConnell, Title II of the statute does not stand alone. It is part and parcel of the broader regulatory regime here. And without Title II, Title I's limitations on soft money contributions to parties will succeed only in taking that soft money and directing it to corporations that are closely aligned with candidates or with the parties themselves. This statutory as-applied challenge that you have before it, you strikes at the heart of the McConnell decision and at the heart of Bicker's Title II. This Court should reject the invitation to revisit the McConnell decision and should give Congress's effort in this area a fair chance at success. Thank you. Thank you, General. Uh, Mr. Bopp, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. What this, uh, what plaintiffs are relying upon here is the distinction that this Court has made between lobbying on the one hand and political campaigns on the other, as summarized by Justice Stevens' concurrence. In Austin, quote, there is a vast difference between lobbying and debating public issues on the one hand and political campaigns for election to public 
office, on the other hand, and that is because of the interests that have justified the regulation of corporate electioneering do not apply. There is a vast difference, but the question I have is whether Congress has any voice in trying to draw the line that divides the two categories. I I think they do, Uh, and they drew a line that was upheld on its face because the vast majority of ads. And if we are in a gray area that there's some could say it's issue and some could say it's electioneering, do we owe any deference to Congress's test that it has drafted? I don't think you owe deference to the test. Uh, under strict scrutiny, you owe fidelity to the Constitution, and the Constitution concludes the right to petition. So it is a difficult question. It's fact-intensive, as all as applied. So your position basically would say we should take all of these cases on a case-by-case basis and not give any presumptive weight to what, uh, what Congress has done. No, I think that you can draw a uh, rule that relies on objective criteria, just as you have in the Norpen doctrine to distinguish between uh, illegitimate efforts to for predatory uh, anti-competitive practices or monopolies to distinguish between those and uh, and genuine the court has even used the phrase genuine efforts to influence uh, Congress uh, with respect to or any governmental agency with respect to the adoption uh, of laws uh, that has been based on objective criteria as the court has explained uh, you have ad- adopted objective uh, criteria to distinguish lawsuits that fall within the right to a p- uh, petition or those that were brought illegitimately for anti-competitive uh, reasons. It's not that this is this exercise is an easy exercise, but it is demanded by the fact that the, the Congress adopted a very broad statute. The only content in this electioneering communication provision, the only content requirement is that you name the candidate. And the reality is that those candidates often are incumbents, and they are engaged in lawmaking functions during these election periods. I mean, there is a difference like in Britain, uh, you know, Parliament is dissolved. So that there, there is a bright line distinction between an election and Parliament actually exercising uh, governmental power. Uh, But when these things overlap, and when the Constitution demands the recognition of the right to petition, then that needs to be dealt with in this as-applied challenge. Now, there's a vast, there's a huge number of, of lobby groups. They have made a conscious decision that it is more important to them to influence what government does today than to influence in a speculative and remote manner who's going to be exercising that power next year through elections. Uh, Wisconsin Right to Life, in the face of these restrictions, has still decided that it's more important to lobby than it is to advocate the election and defeat of candidates and give money to candidates. This is just the reality of our complex government. It's the reality of the freedoms that individuals have to participate in that government. It's not just about elections. It's more importantly about lawmaking, and citizens have a robust right to participate in that lawmaking power, and as a result, this Court should recognize an as-applied exception for grassroots lobbying. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bob. The case is submitted.